Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, February 23rd. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. That, of course, was President Biden Tuesday in Warsaw. And, you know, we all knew there would be declarations like that this week around the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? It was one year ago tomorrow. But I think it's fair to say that Biden has gone further than most people expected him to, both for showing up in person in Kyiv and for seeming to promise endless support to help Ukraine survive. But Russia for all its failures in Ukraine, is playing its long game, too, counting on the American right and the American left to become skeptical of another endless U.S. war with its endless bloodshed and endless outlay of our tax dollars. And to some degree, that's beginning to happen, despite President Biden's language of resolve there. Russia is also counting on Europe to become divided. That's happening, too, to some degree. And for China to see an advantage in allying itself with Putin as relations with the U.S. deteriorate. There are complex chapters of this war yet to come, to be sure, and President Biden may have just complicated them further. I don't know if you've even seen or heard this yet, but there's a report out this morning that he plans to send up to 200 U.S. troops to Taiwan. We currently have only 30 there right now. Is that kind of escalation, kind of daring China to invade Taiwan, smart? Well, last week on the show, as many of you know, we did segments on the humanitarian crisis for Ukrainians a year into the war and the military state of the war. Now we'll talk about the political and diplomatic state of affairs on the questions and tensions I just laid out. With us for this is Washington Post foreign affairs columnist Ishan Tharoor. His latest column is called Biden Rallies the West, but what about the rest? Ishan, always great to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. And I see that in your column you cited the same Biden clip I just played about Kiev standing free. Did anything Biden said or did this week go further than you would have expected for the one-year anniversary week? Uh, Not quite. I think we were well aware that this administration saw this week, saw Biden's trip to Warsaw. And then, of course, it's (laughs) it was quite clear when 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 we we learned that he was also going to Kiev, that this would be a a real valedictory moment. This would be a moment to show uh, the the success of Biden's strategy, in their view, over the past year. You know, they came off a pretty tough time uh, with what happened in Afghanistan and the war in Ukraine allowed the Biden administration to show what it thinks is um, a a record of tremendous leadership, especially in the kind of geopolitical West. And and what this war, what this year has done, it has really consolidated that geopolitical West. And and if you talk to diplomats in the city, especially European diplomats in the city, um, to to a man or a woman, they will say that the Biden administration has been spectacular in coordinating the response, 
in, in, in building solidarity, in, dry, in figuring out what Ukraine needs, in walking the diplomatic tightrope that, that comes with supporting uh, another nation's defense of itself. Uh, and and, and, and they, they, they potentially say that if, this was, if there was a different administration in, in the White House, uh, we may not have seen this kind of cohesion and efficacy in support. Now, that's a different debate for a different time. But the Biden administration clearly sees itself uh, having done something quite special and, and presiding over uh, a real, re, a, a real uh, reinvigoration of, say, the transatlantic alliance. And this week was the moment to, to, to trumpet that. And we'll see if it's also good for his presumed re-election campaign for next year, which might be one of the goals here. Of course, there's a long time between now and next year uh, for developments in the war. But, you know, one thing I've been thinking about is that this might be the most morally uncontroversial Mm -hmm. U.S. involvement in a war since World War II. Yes, there's debate over how much financial sacrifice U.S. taxpayers should make, and we'll have that conversation in this segment. But if you think about Korea and Vietnam and the wars in Iraq and deployments to Latin America, people in this country were divided over if we were warmongers or imperialists or even on the right side. Russia's invasion has has kind of revived the notion that there can be a morally unambiguous good war, this defending of Ukraine. Do you think that's true? Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a New Yorker who lives in D.C., and it has been astonishing to see uh, the extent to which this war has been embraced by so many parts of DC, you know, when, across the political aisle, uh, it has it, it plays into uh, uh, an American conception of self and, Amer- and a conception of America's place in the world that that all the institutions, the think tanks, uh, figures on the Hill, uh, people who are close to the various lobbying groups in the city, it really is is the easy war. It's a just war. It's an obvious conflict. To there's an obvious good and there's an obvious evil, uh, and, and 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 it really has reinvigorated Washington to a certain sense. And I don't I don't mean to be sarcastic about that, but but it's 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 a conflict as you said that is morally quite simple, at least to Americans and at least and especially to Europeans. For Europeans, it's this existential thing. This is a a, a, a vast open war on the European continent something we haven't seen in, in many, many years, something that resurrects all sorts of hideous memories. And and here the West is coming together, holding the line. Ukraine in, in the, the administration's rhetoric, in the rhetoric of many other European governments, is this crucible of freedom. It's this, it's it's not just a nation, it's an ideal um, that, that's being defended uh, against the tyranny and autocracy and sort of rule of law smashing proclivities of the Kremlin. Uh, and 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 this is a fight that that needs to be sustained because, in their view, if they if, if we fail in Ukraine, if Ukraine falls to Russia in some way or the other, or if you know we allow Russia to get away with some sort of um, theft of Ukrainian land, uh, then we're setting supposed precedents elsewhere. And that at that point, the narrative gets tricky to tell to other people in other parts of the world. I want to play another Biden clip. Ishan, and goes mm-hmm. to the question you were address, just addressing of how much Biden has rallied the West. Here again, Biden in Warsaw on Tuesday. We also face fundamental questions about the commitment to the most basic of principles. Would we stand up for the sovereignty of nations? Would we stand up for the right of people to live free from naked aggression? Would we stand up for democracy? 
One year later, we know the answers. Yes, we would stand up for sovereignty, and we did. Yes, we would stand up for the right of people to live free from aggression, and we did. And we would stand up for democracy, and we did. And yesterday, I had the honor to stand with President Zelensky in Kyiv to declare that we will keep standing up for these same things, no matter what. So, Ishan, you cite polling in your article in Europe uh, on public attitudes that you say reinforce Biden's rhetoric. Who asked whom what? So this is a poll put up by the European Council on Foreign Relations. It's a poll of the U.S. of uh, respondents in nine EU countries and then uh, in Russia, China, India and Turkey. And and, and of the methodology is a bit different in some of these different places, but but broadly speaking, what the poll shows is a pretty interesting geopolitical split uh, between the West and the non-West. Uh, let's talk about the, what, what what we're seeing in the West. It, it, what it shows is that, by and large, uh, publics in the in in these countries in the EU and in America see Putin's invasion as a, a, a real threat that has to be countered. They see Russia as a genuine adversary that has to be countered. And they're willing to accommodate uh, the sacrifices that supporting Ukraine in the long run or even in the near to medium term uh, will entail, including, say, uh, you know, what Europe has already endured in terms of uh, inflation and rising energy prices. Uh, but we'll see what that means going forward. I think it, it, it bears out in truth that then a few, you know, towards the end of last year, there were a lot of fears about, oh, what will happen this winter when uh, Europeans uh really feel the pinch in their wallets uh, and and the cold. Uh, and, you know, those fears have not particularly borne out. I think there's a confidence when you talk to European uh, diplomats and politicians that their governments can sustain this and their publics are on side. And um, so that, that cohesion is still there and may be there for quite some time to come. We don't know. Uh, but, of course, on the other dimension, there are there's, there's real skepticism. And one of the things that people are skeptic- skeptical about in this poll in China, Turkey, and India, uh, are, are the, is the rhetorical arguments around this war. People don't necessarily see it as something about the values that, that, that Biden was talking about. They don't see it as some defense of democracy. They see it as perhaps uh, a reflection of a greater power struggle involving uh, two powers that that have a long history of exerting themselves on the world stage over mm-hmm. the last decades. Mm-hmm. We're already getting some really interesting-looking calls on all this. And I want to take two back-to-back here first, who I think are going to have con- uh, contrasting observations. Pepe and Mars Plains, you're on WNYC. Hello, Pepe. Uh, good morning, Brian. I'm uh, very interested in this segment, and I must tell you that my feeling is that we as Americans have others who are fighting our war, what will be another world war, unless they are um, we are supporting with material and with money the Ukrainians, but they're fighting our battle. It's a battle for democracy around the world. And I feel very strongly that the president's speech was very effective, and we have to continue to do this. Would you like, if you feel that strongly, to see the U.S. give them even more help in the form of U.S. troops? Yes. Yeah. No, I well, uh-huh. I would like to, to try. Aha! Uh-huh. I would like them to provide them with the people to train to train the Ukrainians, the forces. Uh, but I. Um, mm-hmm. 
right? Uh-huh. Which is how. The, which is how we. That's where the dilemma is. Yeah, that's where the dilemma is. Exactly, you understood my aha, and that's how we started in Vietnam with people to train the South Vietnamese forces. All right, so Pepe, thank you very much for putting that on the table, and I think we're going to hear something different from Al in Brooklyn. Al, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Yes. Good morning. Uh, what What are you What are you training? Do Do you people understand? that Russia is a nuclear power. You're starting World War III. I heard the same thing when I registered for the draft for Vietnam, that if we don't stop them in Vietnam, we're going to have to fight them here on our shore. Now we got people building factories in Vietnam. You you, you people have to understand that this is not just a little skirmish. You're talking about trying to build up uh, against a superpower with enough nukes to destroy the world. You, you guys have to stop fighting Russia. You've got to make peace. Nobody's talking peace. What about peace? Where is this going to end? In, in a nuclear war? So what do you we do? Do you, do you just let Russia overrun Ukraine? And one could argue that in Vietnam, there really were two sides fighting each other. There really was a civil war of millions of Vietnamese on either side. It's not the case in Ukraine. So what do you, should we just let Russia overtake Ukraine? No, Russia never wanted to take Ukraine. Russia didn't want nuclear missiles on its doorstep, from what I understand. Maybe I'm 100% wrong. Russia never, all they said was, don't join NATO. That's all they asked for, from what I know. Brian, maybe I'm 100% wrong, but I listened to your show for the other point of view. But mm-hmm. the other point of view is we got, we got we to annihilate Russia. That's not going to happen. You're not going to get Russia out, 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 out from where they are. A compromise, an agreement, a, a truce. That's what's going to happen, not nuclear war. That's you talking crazy stuff. Al, here. thank you. Thank you very much. Well, interesting two contrasting views, right, Ishan, from the two callers? Yeah, and, you know, they touch on two very important things. Look, uh, I, I mean, I, I'll just immediately say that the narrative that Ukraine was about to join NATO and that therefore prompted Putin to carry out this invasion, that is a false one. Ukraine was not about to join NATO. It wasn't. That was not anywhere practically in the cards. Uh, now, because of the invasion, there's a much more real discussion about getting NATO, Ukraine into NATO. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to recognize that there's one person who could easily stop all this, and that is Vladimir Putin. Uh, at the same time, yes, you're hearing from a lot of very serious scholars, including some people in think tanks here in D.C., who recognize that uh for whatever the, the the wrongness, to use a very crass, you know, simple, uh, crude word, of this invasion, we are, by by stoking the war further, by pushing Russia, Russia further into the corner, uh, creating a set of risks. And one of those risks is indeed uh, Russia rec- considering that it has no other option but to escalate and use these nuclear weapons. Now, if you talk to American officials, if you talk to Ukrainian officials especially, that threat is not one they take seriously. They don't believe right now that Russia will actually do this because in their view, it will be the kind of suicide note of the Kremlin to consider this option. The Kremlin would lose support it has from other countries in the world. It would lead to all sorts of responses that would be, you know, catastrophic for not just Russia, but for the political dispensation in power. Uh, 
even then, there are some people who say, why court the risk of that kind of Russian escalation? And that is a that is a complicated question to unpack, and it, it dovetails with the question you asked. You know, if we are going to be so scared of the the, the implicit threat of a Russian nuclear response, um, are we letting Russia bully us? Are we re- letting Russia, you know, dictate the rules of the game? And I think there are a lot of people in Europe who refuse to let that happen. And there are a lot of people here in Washington who don't want to let that happen either. Can you play out for us the scenario that you just alluded to where if Russia were to use any kind of nuclear weapon, and there are different degrees of nuclear weapons, but even the smallest, what they call, I think, tactical nuclear weapon, you know, would be devastating for many civilians. If Russia were to do that, uh, you say Putin's probably not going to do that because the consequences for him would be so dire. Lay that out for us the way people describe it to you. What would those consequences be? It's not so simple as the world community then goes in and gets Putin because he's committed such an international crime. So what is it? I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty complicated question, and I, I don't have a, a kind of a very clear TikTok of what the response would look like. But you would see certainly um, significant international military action, not necessarily perhaps on uh, – Russian forces in Russia, but certainly on Russian positions in Ukraine, uh, you would see a major diplomatic response by the world community. You'd probably see countries like China and India and other nations pressured to also um, take serious actions on Russia. Uh, Unclear what those would be, but I think there would be a pretty strong uh, sense that it would rupture Russia's ties with many other parts of the world. Uh, And... uh, and I mean, depending on the scale of the nuclear option, I don't think you would necessarily immediately see a, a nuclear response to Russia, but you would see a pretty hard conventional response. We've been talking about the West being united around Ukraine, but let me play an exchange from yesterday, from All Things Considered on NPR, between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the host Ari Shapiro. Austin speaks first. And by the way, all of our allies and partners that are part of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, and there's some 50 countries that uh, that participate in that, uh, they're bellying up to the bar and they're providing uh, uh, support uh, in every way possible. Well, you say that the contact group is holding United Front, but the Spanish prime minister says it's time for Ukraine to negotiate with Russia. I mean, if Ukraine does not achieve a remarkable success on the battlefield, do you anticipate those calls to negotiate growing? Well, I, uh, again, I, I can't predict uh, one way or the other how countries are going to view this post, uh, post-offensive. If there is an, uh, some sort of negotiation in the future, uh, Ukraine will have a strong hand at the, at the, at the uh, negotiating table. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on All Things Considered yesterday. So, Ishan, what do you make of the Prime Minister of Spain, as Ari Shapiro referenced, urging Ukraine to negotiate, and Austin acknowledging, well, maybe the result we're supporting Ukraine for is not to completely expel Russia, but just so Ukraine is in as strong a negotiating position as possible if that time comes. Did he just say the quiet part out loud? I mean, they've been saying the quiet part for quite some time. I think there is a realism, and we probably should have said this at the top, that the Biden administration we know has been in, in various private contacts with their Ukrainian counterparts, been messaging repeatedly that, look, we are going to support you as best we can and as rapidly as we can, but you need to start recognizing that this support is not indefinite 
And we may politically find it difficult to maintain the same level in the months to come. And that message has been delivered to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are well aware of it, which is why the Ukrainians in public say, please give, give, give us more now quickly so we can get this over with. And I think a lot will happen in the coming months. The Russians are, from what we can tell, uh, launching uh, some kind of offensive in the Ukrainian southeast and Donbass right now. The Ukrainians are preparing uh, by late March or early April for a major counteroffensive, uh, driven in part by new shipments of tanks from Europe and the West. Um, and uh, those those actions that those campaigns will dictate a lot of will of you know what may be there be there. But we've known for quite some time that very few uh, officials in this administration, the U.S believe the Ukrainians have the capacity to reclaim all the territory they've lost to Russia, including Crimea, and that they just want right now to give the Ukrainians as strong a hand as possible whenever there are future negotiations. But it should be said that we have no idea when there'll be future negotiations because it's not as if the Russians have made it very clear uh, that they want to have negotiations. The, there is still one person who really could, could end this, and that's Vladimir Putin, and we have no clear sense that he is willing to engage right now in any kind of good faith diplomatic process. Do you see the outlines of a Russia-Ukraine negotiated settlement? Is this one of those situations where the deal to be struck has always been clear, but both sides had to lose a lot of lives in a way to save face before they were ready to get there? I mean, I think that would be the a, a pretty, for the Ukrainians, a very tragic reality to have to accept given what they've sacrificed and what they've gone through and what Russia has done to their country. Uh, it's hard to tell you what those outlines are now. I think we're still trying to get into a stage where we can even talk about talks uh, and what those could be. Uh, there is such a gap right now between both sides. There are very few channels of communication directly between um, the West uh, and, and the Kremlin. Uh, and so we're really in a kind of wait and see sort of stage. And in that stage, uh, the emphasis is entirely on on aiding Ukraine's military efforts uh, in the months to come. Washington Post global affairs analyst Ishan Tharoor. He also anchors their daily uh, foreign affairs newsletter called Today's World View. Ishan, thanks for sharing your insights with us. We always appreciate it. Uh, always. I love coming on. Thanks for having me, Brett. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.